Hello and welcome to Canthropod, the Cambridge Anthropology podcast. This is episode 19, Anthropology Beyond the Academy, a conversation with Gareth Ward. I'm David Sneath. I'm a reader here in the Department of Social Anthropology. And today we had a visitor, Gareth Ward, who is an alumnus from this department, came to give a presentation on his fascinating career in the Foreign Office. So I've uh, got the chance now afterwards to sit down with him and to discuss a little bit about his career and how he sees uh, the relationship with his training here as an undergraduate many years ago. So how did you find yourself going from uh, uh, an anthropology degree here into the Foreign Office? So the path was straightforward on one level, but uh, complex on another. So I joined the civil service through the fast stream entry point, which is where a lot of uh, policy officers join the civil service. But then I think the key decisions that I've taken in my career have been, first of all, to work on Russia and to uh, study Russian and to become uh, an expert on on, uh, former Soviet Union. And then a second decision point later on in mid-career was to uh, focus on China. At that time, China was not so large on the radar as, as, as it is today. This was before China had really entered the global stage. But investing into uh, speaking Chinese and understanding China was uh, a significant investment of time, but that has put me in a position to, to work further in Asia-Pacific. So those, those, that's the, 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 the main uh, career path that I've taken so far. Was there anything that you think you've taken from your, your work here in anthropology as a student that became useful in your, uh, your career as a diplomat uh, or, or some way in which your perspective was affected by your training here? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I think that diplomacy... Uh, has a lot to do with the social sciences um, and communication. And uh, whilst maybe my favourite definition of of diplomacy is getting other people to want uh, what you want, sort of soft power diplomacy approach, uh, uh, nevertheless, there's a a lot of the the process of diplomacy is about exploring and understanding uh, a a different culture and, and polity and analyzing that in a way which is uh, enlightening for uh, your headquarters and for your political masters and for uh, enabling insights that can lead to uh, deals or or broker uh, ends to conflict. And that sort of insight comes to a degree through using uh, techniques that that are well established in social anthropology of, of uh, immersing yourself in a culture, understanding uh, the dynamics and the different uh, political groups and narratives that are in play, making sure that you have a, a high level of expertise and that you uh, are listening to not only the uh, the elites but also the uh, the local communities. Uh, so that that's one area. I think another area that has been important to me in my career has been uh, understanding that often words uh, 
will tell you one thing, but symbols may tell you something different. And in diplomacy, a lot of communication is aimed at influencing as well as informing. So you hear what people uh, want you to hear uh, or what they would like you to think about them rather than uh, when you analyze some of the, the, the symbols and rituals that you are seeing, you can get uh, deep insights. So uh, the way that uh, in, in China, the way that meetings are organized and the hierarchy of the uh, of the way that people present and uh, who they are presenting to is always very interesting. In, in, in Russia, the symbols around the Second World War and the importance of that as a forging moment for national identity are very strong. I uh, would participate every year in a very poignant ceremony to remember the millions of people who died in the blockade of Leningrad in the Second World War and that uh, whilst it feels perhaps to uh, a Brit or a West European to be several generations ago it, uh, in the Russian psyche it's, uh, it seems much more present and, and modern. So uh, symbols, uh, narratives and uh, different listening to different uh, interest groups are things which which we focused on a lot during uh, during my my uh, study time I, equally i think nationalism uh, i remember studying the uh, the way that countries can invent their own national identities and myths or strengthen at least strengthen those identities through uh, through uh, fiction as well as, as fact, and that I think remains a very strong trend in the in the in the modern world. The nation state, uh, perhaps more than ever in in uh, the current time, is is uh, uh, a, a key actor in the international sphere. And multilateralism uh, is uh, has been very successful in the decades since the Second World War, but that doesn't mean the nation state has disappeared. And particularly. The big nation states that I have worked in, uh, Russia, China, um, they have strong uh, national narratives about their place in the world and why they're uh, not necessarily happy with the current order and what they want to change and what should, should happen in their view to reflect the appropriate weight and historical uh, destiny of their, of their nations. Actually, when you said that, you made me think of the, uh, the, the, the fact that, you know, in, in Russia, the Second World War is the great patriotic war. And in some ways, you know, modern Russia, the Soviet Union as was, uh, it was the first great sort of national war that was fought in the new regime, after all. And so um, I suppose, you know, it's a, it's a familiar history to us in some ways, but in the Russian context, it's a really special moment. After all, it was, you know, a kind of moment which created a new sort of patriotism uh, out of necessity uh, for mobilizing for, for war against Germany. Uh, that's right. I think uh, uh, in, in Britain we, uh, for understandable reasons, have our own focus on different episodes of the, of the Second World War. But uh, the total war nature uh, of the Soviet resistance is something that even even if you read about it you you struggle to to understand and yet uh, 
um, uh, there's uh, there's a uh, an anecdote which managed to bring me much closer to many of my my Russian counterparts. Um, my uh, godfather was serving on the polar convoys in uh, North uh, Russia, uh, bringing supplies uh, across the uh, Arctic to to Murmansk. And at the end of the Second World War, his his uh, frigate was sunk by a uh, German U-boat in May 1945, so very close to the end of the war, and he was saved by the Red uh, Navy, uh, the Soviet Navy. And uh, when I told this story, um, I would have the Russian audiences in the palm of my hand, and it was a very effective tool for, for breaking down uh, barriers. Um, but uh, I was extremely uh, surprised when I found out that the uh, the military hospital, the, the naval hospital, had heard this story, and the general in charge, or rather the uh, the admiral in charge, had asked his staff to look into the archives and find the file of my godfather, which they had kept in their filing system, and read the notes of the doctor who had um, set his broken collarbone and given him a 50-gram ration of chocolate uh, a day after, uh, in order to recover, and he recovered and... Uh, spent the end of the war in a military hospital in Mormons before coming coming home. But uh, the, on, on a human level, that, the reaction I would have to that story uh, convinced me even more of, of how powerful uh, the historical narrative was and is for, for Russians. Conversely, is there anything that you might take from your long career and sort of apply back to anthropology as an academic subject that we teach here is there anything that we might learn from your experience that we should um, take an interest in I think uh, I remember when I when I was studying um, being uh, uh, extremely energized by the uh, uh, analysis of difference and that I think is of course a very strong point of anthropology by taking um, relatively uh, diverse and isolated at times cultures, you can highlight that their uh, universal, universal uh, values or experiences which, which may perceive, we may perceive in, in the West or in, in a, uh, an international context to be universal are not necessarily so and that there are plenty of other ways of building social structures that, that endure. Um, at the same time, I have also now spent a long time uh, promoting uh, uh, a range of values uh, around democracy and human rights and also around creativity and uh, uh, academic freedom and, and so on. And my sense of the, of the, uh, the scope to influence and impact on uh, other cultures, uh, I think anthropology... Uh, when I was studying, was beginning to get to grips with the uh, the issue of the anthropologist as an as an actor and an agent as well, uh, and, and as uh, somebody bringing change, and uh, not just documenting change. Uh, but that uh, I think now in the global interconnected world uh, uh, is is absolutely key, and understanding that uh, uh, we bring our own uh, agendas, um, recognising the biases, but also being able to, uh, to, to work out when we, are, when we are affecting positive change. That's, that's 
been a challenge in my in my career. I can't say that uh, I've always been successful in affecting change, but uh, I have had uh, the opportunity to to both help minimise uh, tension between the UK and other countries, and also to promote sets of values that I think will be beneficial for uh, not only the UK but the the the, the countries involved. You've rather kindly said that um, parts of your anthropological training was useful in your uh, career as a diplomat. Um, was any of that at all useful in um, your career within the FCO, or a big organization, a complex institution with its own internal processes and politics? Uh, you're absolutely right. The Foreign Office is a big institution. Um, I think uh, if you are using uh, terminology from uh, from social anthropology, you might call it an acephalous uh, organization. It has many bosses, uh, little kingdoms around the world, and those, those are the ambassadors in the embassies around the world, and uh, they report back to London, uh, nominally sometimes, uh, they, they ought to report back to London, uh, but at the same time they have a high degree of autonomy. So Trying to affect change in an organisation like that, uh, you need to realise that central edicts won't work. Uh, they're a part of the, the solution, but you equally need to get critical uh, momentum of support from, from some of the, the kings or the chiefs or, or the queens out around the network. Um, that's one aspect. Another aspect is the interesting diversity of the organisation, which has two-thirds of its staff are not British citizens. They are uh, citizens of the countries in which our posts operate. And so you need to have a, a working culture that is flexible enough to embrace uh, useful and, and positive elements of local culture that are brought through mainly through the the locally hired staff, but also that retains some core of the British civil service values, which uh, are, are uh, essential for us representing the, the UK. So uh, that balance is, is important to strike. And, and of course, within any given country that you're, you're working, you, you will have a diverse um, population and set of uh, probably uh, different ethnic groups and so on that you need to make sure you are uh, in contact with effectively in order to get a full picture of the country and that may or may not be uh, require you to, to, to change the, the nature of your staff. Nowadays uh, uh, digital diplomacy is, is, a, is a key issue uh, and I think uh, uh, some of the some of the study I did, albeit that that was a, a, a pre-internet age, perish the thought that I was studying here. Uh, nevertheless, the, the, uh, some of the tools around um, narratives and, and ways of communicating now are helpful when, when I'm trying to uh, create my uh, impact through the internet. Your next posting is going to be Vietnam. Indeed, I understand you'll be Her Majesty's Ambassador to Vietnam. Um, and I gather that you've got a sort of period of time to prepare for that, to learn the language, you're learning the language and so on. Uh, does any of that um, remind you of your time 
uh, here in Cambridge. I'm thinking actually not, not of your time as an undergraduate, but your, the time you spent on a, a research project here where you wrote an excellent paper which was published uh, on education provision in, in Eurasia. Um, so is it at all familiar doing the research for your next posting? Absolutely. Uh, it's a, uh, a great dimension of the, the way the Foreign Office op operates that they will invest in in staff ahead of their postings and so I'm currently uh, as you say preparing to go uh, as the British ambassador to uh, Vietnam and I've been studying Vietnamese for uh, nearly a year and I uh, feel like I'm ready to get out there and uh, make an impact on Vietnamese radio and TV uh, uh, so that's that's one aspect of it but alongside that uh, in order to get myself up to speed, uh, I'm using a lot of uh, uh, research materials. I'm reaching out to academics and experts in different fields. And the uh, core uh, social science skills of, of uh, uh, data analysis and collecting data from different sources definitely help. Uh, I think it's... Uh, uh, it's useful uh, being able to draw on the UK academic community. We have expertise in uh, in the UK uh, academic community on, on pretty much every country in the world and on many of the, the specific functional themes of the Foreign Office as well. So it's, it's part of our objective to, to reach out and understand what expertise already exists. Uh, so that's that's uh, one of the benefits of, of coming back here is to be able to link in to the research that's going on relating to Vietnam. Gareth Ward, thank you very much. Thank you, David.